Father, you have dropped us down here in the midst of this story of the life of a man living 4,000 or so years ago. And we have been amazed to find how pertinent his life is to our own. How much application there is and how much immediate and real-time teaching there is. The story of one who lived so long ago. And it it reminds me, Father, that the human condition is uh, not very changed over the course of history. That for all of our knowledge and technology and all that we've accomplished or so we think, we still are in desperate need of a Redeemer and a Savior. We still struggle in life. We still fight emotional battles and physical battles and spiritual battles. We are still a flawed people. We are still far weaker than we think we are. And we need Jesus. And it is a great comfort to gather together here and to open up your word, Father, and to know that the message is not just archaic, but is immediate to our lives. I pray, Father, for revelation this morning. And revelation such that motivates us and moves us forward toward that final day at the last. Help us to see Jesus and to long for Him and to love His appearing. And teach us this morning, Holy Spirit of the living Christ, in Jesus' name, Amen. Well, your elders had an opportunity this weekend to get away and uh, went up and stayed at a, at a house in the, out there in the Cascades, just past about eight miles or so past Snoqualmie, up on a ridge overlooking Lake Cachis. The house is amazing, absolutely beautiful. Um, we were invited to stay there. and Just an incredible, picturesque location. The, the weather, as you've known for the last couple of days, was crystal clear. And we looked down on the lake, and there was snow on the hills and the trees. And, and I thought about how amazing it is to be dropped down into the midst of the Cascades. It boasts many significant peaks. It runs all the way 700 miles from Lytton Mountain in British Columbia all the way down to Lassen Peak in Northern California. Some of the more well-known mountains in this range you are probably familiar with, Mount Shasta, Mount Hood, Mount St. Helens, what's left of her, Mount Rainier, and the nearby Mount Baker. In all, along the Cascade Mountain Range, there are 15 peaks that stand high above all the rest. And we were privileged, again, to be dropped down in the midst of them. Well, that's where we are in the book of Job. The book of Job boasts many major peaks and valleys along its 42-chapter trek. And it's been really encouraging and exciting to me to, to hike up a few of these. We've, we've gone on some major peaks on Sunday morning, haven't we? We've, we've gone on the peak of repentance. We've, we've stood on the mountaintop of suffering, the peak of friendship, the pinnacle of, of death. We stood on the mountain of our mediator, our need for a mediator. On the mountain of faith. Last week on the mountaintop of discipleship. And in between each of these there are valleys, but, but these are all major themes in our walk as believers. On this range that we are trekking until we finally come to see Jesus face to face. Well this morning I want you to consider what I think of as the Mount Rainier of all the peaks in the book of Job. This is the big one. This is the one that we want to see. It's a sneak peek, if you will, of a great day, of a moment in time, of a grand perspective. And it's one that the Lord spoke 4,000 years ago. It's the one He has continually spoken all down throughout history. It's the peak that He calls us to. What's interesting about the Cascades, just about wherever you stand on those peaks, Mount Rainier, if you were to stand on one and and could see clearly all the way down, Mount Rainier would stand above all the rest. That's that's the peak that we're on this morning. That's the one we're going to look at. Verse 23 of chapter 19. Job says, Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. And they are. That with an iron stylus and lead they were engraved in the rock forever. As for me, he says, I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last he will take his stand on the earth. 
Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God, whom I myself shall behold, and whom my eyes will see, and not another. My friends, this peak Job witnesses from his lowest point in the whole dialogue. From the low point, he looks up. There's an anonymous quote out there, a wise man can see more from the bottom of a well than a fool can see from a mountaintop. And here we find Job, and he is at the bottom of a well. He has just cried out in verse 21, Pity me, pity me, O you my friends, for the hand of God has struck me. Why do you persecute me as God does? And are not satisfied with my flesh. He is emotionally at the bottom. But it's there at the bottom, recognize this game, that he looks up and he sees Jesus. And he sees at the last. And he recognizes the great peak, the mountaintop of all humanity, of our existence, the place that we are headed. He's just gone on a, on a 16 verse cry for compassion. And a plea for pity from his friends who all seem intent on indicting him in his wretchedness. But in this place of dark despair, Job looks up and he sees something amazing. And it's more than a statement of faith. We need to recognize this, my friends. This is a revelation. Job is receiving here in faith a revelation. Something that, whether he realized it or understood it at all before, we can debate. But at this point, he sees, he knows. It's this earliest of prophecies, well, one of the two earliest prophecies that I can find, specifically about the return of Jesus Christ. His peak is absolutely breathtaking. Now consider this. If Job is, as we've said, the oldest biblical book written, and I, I believe it is, then this stands as one of the two oldest prophetic revelations of Jesus' return in all of Scripture. In fact, the only prophecy that would predate it would be the prophecy of Enoch. Enoch? Yeah, Enoch. In Jude 14, it was about these men that Enoch, in the seventh generation from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of His holy ones. Pin that down. According to the book of Jude, Enoch was the earliest prophet. He's the earliest prophet that we know of. And he prophesied and he said that he saw the Lord coming with many thousands of his holy ones. He saw the glorious appearing, the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now what's interesting is if you timeline this out, and we don't often think about these things, but Enoch was born just 622 years after Adam was created. Which means Adam was still alive in the days of Enoch. Because Adam lived... 930 years. So Adam died just 57 years before Enoch himself was raptured. When Genesis 5.23 says, So all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God and he was not for God took him. And we get more of a picture of that in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, verse 5. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death. And he was not found because God took him up. For he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. And by the way, there's a hint of anyone who would like to be raptured. Enoch was taken up because he was pleasing to God. The relationship was so good. The walk, so pleasant, so pleasing to the Lord, that as they walked along one day, I I just imagine this. The Lord saying, Enoch, why don't we just head on home? And Enoch said, great. And they just kept going. Enoch was called up the first man to be caught up because he was pleasing to God. Now I've been asked before, why is it that only a certain group of living people have the privilege of being raptured, the church alive at the time of Jesus calling home? Why does just this little group of people get to be raptured above and beyond all others in history? I mean, Abraham was a great man of faith. Why doesn't he get to be raptured? Or or, or Daniel, why why did they have to die and be buried? And why us, if in fact it is us, Remember what Jesus said to Thomas and the boys? He said in John 20, verse 29, Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believe. And a different characteristic about the church in this age is it is filled with people who have believed without seeing. Oh, we haven't seen with our eyes. We see with the heart. We see through faith. And that pleases the Lord. 
Faith always pleases the Lord. Without faith, it's impossible to please Him. Hebrews 11.6 For he who comes to God must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of those who seek Him. So the Lord is looking for faith in people. Faith which is, as we've said before, the language of heaven. Now it's interesting because Enoch truly himself was a prophet. Go back to Genesis 5 for a moment. Enoch's son was a man by the name of Methuselah, which is another interesting uh, proof of Enoch as a prophet. Well, why would you say that? Because Enoch named his son Methuselah, means in his death he shall send, or in his death it shall come. Just after the death of Methuselah, the flood came. And I would propose to you that Enoch was prophesying about the flood long before it happened. That Methuselah was prophesying about the flood long before it happened. That Lamech spoke of the flood. And then, of course, Noah. And we know Noah was talking about the flood the whole time he was building the ark. Part of that process was taking time to build the ark and get the word out that there's not much time left. And so we have all the way back in, this, in, this, uh, in the descendants of Adam, these ten generations, we have prophets all the way back then. We reach back there because if you look back, the earliest prophecy again on record is that of Enoch that he saw the Lord coming. Second prophecy in written record would be this of Job right here, again seeing the coming of the Lord. The bottom line, gang, and this is amazing to me, is all these things are written. Job says, oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Well, they are written for all to see and know that God revealed His final coming at the last, even before revealing His first coming. Why would He do that? Because that's what He's drawing us all to. If you want to know what timeline-wise is on the heart of the Father, it's His second coming. It's the consummation of all things. It's when it's all said and done. That's what God is longing for, looking forward to, desirous of. And so before saying anything else prophetically, He said, oh, I'm coming with many thousands of my holy ones. He says, oh, I'll be there. Job says, at the last he will take his stand on the earth. The earliest prophecies are about the last man standing, Jesus Christ, when he comes again. I think it's because God himself just can't wait. (laughs) If we can look at God and see some emotion, some passion there in his heart, we see a God who is excited for the coming, who is excited for the consummation of all things on that great day. And by the way, this is not a day to fear. If you know Jesus, far too many Christians fear the coming of the Lord. What is wrong with that? That we should fear His coming, the one we love the most? Isn't this the most important thing for anyone to look forward to? If you know Jesus, there's no fear. Now, if you don't know Jesus, that's a different conversation that we probably ought to have sometime. But Jesus wants you to know Him. The grace of God, Paul writes, Titus 2.11, has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. All men. Not to a select few, not to a handful. Bringing salvation to everyone. It is a wide-open, all-encompassing invitation to trust. Because as Job says, our Redeemer lives. And He's on the way. He is coming. Now this morning I just want to point out four summits on this great pinnacle of prophetic hope here in the book of Job. Redemption, return, resurrection, and recognition. Those are the four. I want to jot those down if you're a note taker. Redemption, return, resurrection, and finally recognition. Let's look at these summits here. Redemption, number one. Verse 25, Job cries out, As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives. Do you know that? Do you know that your Redeemer lives? I mean, ask yourself this morning, in your heart of hearts, what does even that question do to you? Do you shout, yes, I know? Or do you sit there and go, oh yeah, that's a good point, Rick. Do you know your Redeemer lives? Job claims what God later prescribed for Israel. Job claims his Redeemer. The Lord would make this Israelite law. And in fact, Ruth claimed the same thing for herself. My Redeemer! My Redeemer. Same word here, gang. The word, and you may have remembered it from our study in Ruth or looking back, the kinsman Redeemer. I know, Job says, my kinsman Redeemer lives. The word in the Hebrew is the Gaal. 
Gaal, which means the closest relative, the kinsman who has the right and the responsibility to redeem a family member. Keep your finger there and go back to Deuteronomy chapter 25. Deuteronomy 25. I want you to see and understand what it is Job is saying, who he's claiming. When he says, my Redeemer lives, Deuteronomy 25 and verse 5. We're in the midst of various and sundry laws for Israel. Moses is speaking and he says, when brothers live together, 25 verse 5, when brothers live together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the deceased shall not be married outside the family to a strange man. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her to himself as wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And it shall be that the firstborn whom she bears shall assume the name of his dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. You see, inheritance is very important to the father. Very important to Israel. So if a man dies, his brother has the responsibility of the Gaal, the kinsman redeemer, who then redeems the wife, giving her hope and a life and continuing his brother's family line, which is typically why the second uh, brother, or all the brothers, were very interested in who the older brother was marrying. (laughs) Now you might say, well, that's kind of weird, Rick. I mean, I guess that's that whole Jewish thing about, you know, assigned marriages, and you don't really, you don't marry for love. Hey, love has nothing to do with what we've made it have to do with in America. It's not about emotion. It's not about, ooh, oh, I got the googly feeling, and so, uh, you know, googly feeling, that's kind of a... This is an online feeling, wouldn't that be, Hannah? But I get that tickly feeling, and so I want to marry her. That's a bad reason to get married, ever, ever. You marry someone you know as a friend that, that, that knows the Lord. And in this case, you marry in faith, and you grow in love and commitment. So that's what a true marriage is based on, is love based in commitment, not emotion. Well, anyway, so the, so the brother would take his brother's wife if his brother died. Now, it says in verse 6, it shall be that the firstborn whom she bears shall assume the name of his dead brother, so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. Continuing on. But if the man does not desire to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses to establish a name for his brother in Israel. He is not willing to perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of his city shall summon him and speak to him. In other words, try to convince him (laughs) to do his duty. And if he persists and says, I do not desire to take her, then his brother's wife shall come to him in the sight of the elders and pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face. (laughs) I just love the Lord. (laughs) Because he's given this woman the opportunity to do what she wants to do in the first place, you know. But why does she take the sandal off his foot? Because he's a heel. See, that's the issue here. And she shall declare, Thus it is done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And I love this. In Israel his name shall be called the house of him whose sandal is removed. (laughs) And that's the beginning, the law of the kinsman redeemer. The Gaal, the man who would redeem his brother's wife, protecting inheritance, providing for his future. And that's what Jesus does for the bride. He's the kinsman redeemer. He redeems the wife. The wife who's lost, who's alone, who's out there, who has no inheritance. Hey, that was us, wasn't it? We had no inheritance. We were not a people. The vast majority of us, with the exception of one or two in the fellowship, had no inheritance whatsoever. Not being Hebrew. Not being Jewish. And Ruth would understand that. Ruth married into Israel. Ruth was a Moabitess, an outsider. And she married an Israelite. And he died. And her sons died. Her whole family dies. And she's left there just Ruth with her mother-in-law, Naomi. And they were close. And Ruth loved her. And she chose Naomi's God to be her God. And Naomi's people to be her people. And she stayed with her. And together, Ruth and Naomi returned to Israel. And there, Ruth begins to fall in love with a man named Boaz. Remember the story. It's a great little romantic book there in the Bible. But so much more. Because when Naomi finds out that Ruth is in love with this Israelite, this man named Boaz, it tells us in Ruth 2.20 that she said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed of the Lord who has not withdrawn his kindness to the living and to the dead. And again Naomi said to her, This man is our relative. He is our Gaal. He's our Redeemer. He is our kinsman Redeemer. Now understand, before any of this happened, 
Job's choice to describe Jesus was the Gaal, my Redeemer. The one who purchases me. The one who has rescued me out of my despair. We were hopeless. We were without inheritance. We were without provision or protection. Out there on our own. But now, Peter says in 1 Peter 2.9, you're a chosen race. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Understand, that was a description of Israel before Jesus came. But Jesus came through Israel, and now that is a description of you and me and the church. So that we may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. For we were once not a people, now we are the people of God. We had once not received mercy, now we have received mercy. I think I shared a few years back that there was a time in my life where I was really looking for my heritage and my background. And being born in Southern California, I felt like, man, I just kind of came out of a melting pot. Well, Rick, what, what's your background? I got some Scottish and some mixture of other European, you know, fluff out there. And, and it, but no, I, it was. Where do you nail down, especially in this day and age? Some of you can. Some of you have very strong heritage that goes back to the old country. I didn't. My old country is California. <laughs> But it hit me one day. My inheritance goes all the way back to Abraham. All the way back to the beginning. I have an inheritance in Jesus Christ. It goes further back than anything else. Peter says in 1 Peter 1.18, You are not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ we were redeemed. He paid for us with His own blood. And Titus 2.13 tells us our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, verse 14, gave Himself for us to redeem us from every every lawless deed and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession, zealous for good deeds. That's redemption. I know my Redeemer lives. Do you know? Do you know your Redeemer lives and what He's done for you? I mean, if nothing else will put a smile on your face, shouldn't that? I know my Redeemer lives, and I have been redeemed, but there's more. Secondly, return. Verse 25, continuing on. I know my Redeemer lives, he says, and at the last, he will take his stand on the earth. This is an incredible statement for Job to make with no preconditions, no previous understanding, no previous scripture even to draw off of. Well, how did he know, Rick? It came right out of the heart of faith. This is prophecy game. He is speaking inspired by God there at the bottom of the pit. The return of Jesus Christ. He is going to, at the last, take His stand on the earth. The Bible says in Isaiah 64, verse 1, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, as fire kindles the brushwood, as fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, that the nations may tremble at your presence. Do the nations tremble at the presence of Jesus right now? And and we could send out messages to all the world leaders. Hey, Jesus is is coming back. Get your act together. And they would laugh it off. Job, Isaiah says, oh, that 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 day would come. And it's coming. It is coming. Micah chapter 1 verse 3. Behold, Micah prophesied, the Lord is coming forth from His place. He will come down and tread on the high places of the earth. He has and He will. Micah is speaking about when He will. Job tells us when, by the way, this happens. He actually timelines it for us. Want to know when? At the last. That's what Job says. At the last, he will take his stand on earth. You know, I I struggle with sharing this with you. I think I will just for fun. First of all, the the phrase at the last is from the word asaron, and it means at the end of the end, at the utmost, the finale. So what Job is pointing out is at the very end of all things, Jesus will take his stand on the earth. Jesus knew, uh, Job knew this way back before. I'm reading a book, and there was a, a man who began to work a timeline from Adam based on biblical genealogy and, and track it all the way through to find out where exactly we would be in history. And I find it interesting that based on this chart, and it could be wrong, it could be wrong, the 6,000 year mark when we have been here, 6,000 complete and full years, is 2077. Now I find that interesting because there's all kinds of indication and prophecies of of six days and the Lord resting on the seventh of of, of six days being almost a picture of the history of the world and the seventh being that millennial kingdom. 
And so I've always wondered, you know, will that be how it plays out? Will it be smack dab on that last day or the day after 6,000 years, boom, that's when it's all going to happen? It would be fascinating to me if it did. It may not. Rick, did you just say he's coming in 2077? No, I think he's coming much sooner than that. Okay. And we don't know the day or the time, but we do know the season. And we are in the season here at the last. Job tells us when, at the end, the utmost, the finale. He implies where, that he will take his stand on the earth. Job says, from my flesh, I'm going to see God on the earth, taking his stand, feet pressed into the ground of earth. I've had the privilege of standing in that place, and it's profound. The place the Bible tells us that Jesus will take His stand. We're, we're told exactly where it is. Did you, did you know that? Bible specific. Not only that Jesus, our Redeemer, will take His stand on the earth there at the last, but even where. Look with your own eyes at the book of Zechariah. Toward the end of the Old Testament, second to last book there, Zechariah chapter 14. I think this is one of those passages that by the time we get to Zechariah to study it, you all will be just quoting as we read through it. Zechariah chapter 14 and verse 4. I'll give you a moment to find it there. It's page 965. <laughs> Zechariah 14 verse 4. In that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. This is where Jesus touches down. On the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley, so that half of the mountain will move toward the north, and the other half will move toward the south. You'll all flee by the valley of my mountain, for the valley of the mountains will reach to Azel. Yes, you will flee just like you did. You fled uh, before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, the king of Judah. And then the Lord my God will come, and all the holy ones with him. In that day there will be no light The luminaries will dwindle. It will be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night. But it will come about that at the evening time there will be light. And in that day living waters will flow out of Jerusalem. Half of them toward the eastern sea, half of them toward the western sea. That's the Dead Sea and the Med Sea. And it will be in summer as well as in winter. Verse 9, And the Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day the Lord will be the only one. His name the only one. Those of you going to Israel, we leave in three weeks. <laughs> and we will stand on the Mount of Olives. In fact, roughly four weeks from today, somewhere right around there, we will be standing on the Mount of Olives. This is where Jesus comes back. Cheryl said the first time we went to Israel, what amazed her most was not the history, which is breathtaking, or what's happening currently, which is incredible, but it's standing in places of future events. That the Bible declares things are going to happen right here. And to stand on the Mount of Olives and look out over Jerusalem is just... I I can't even describe the feeling. His word says he will touch down, set foot right there. Haven't I read somewhere that that we meet him in the clouds? Oh yeah, seven years earlier. 1 Thessalonians 4.17 says, Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. But again, that's at least seven years before His feet press into the earth of Mount Olivet. Paul reveals the rapture of the church. Paul talks about the rapture, and it's a mystery. It's, in fact, here's a good way to look at it. It's a hidden peak. You're getting a peak right now at a hidden peak. If we look along the Cascades, there are some peaks that are a little bit smaller that are, that are hidden. You can't see for all of the large ones. And that's kind of what this is like. The resurrection of Jesus Christ was a great peak in biblical history. And the return of Jesus Christ, another great peak. And if you were looking from one to the other, you might only see the return. God had another peak in there that was hidden for a long time, misunderstood, that Paul said, hey, just look over the top of the resurrection of Jesus and look down past that valley. Before you get to the peak of His return is the peak of the rapture, where the church gets called up. There's a time after the church has been caught up that Job describes as at the last, when the entire world will see Jesus coming with the clouds. Revelation 1.7 Behold, He's coming with the clouds. 
And every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over Him. So it is to be. Amen. And by the way, the clouds may not be cumulus or nebulous. The clouds may very well be the many thousands of His holy ones coming behind Him. I see Jesus, but there's a mass of... What is, it? is that Pastor Rick? <laughs> But that's the time when He comes back, sets foot on all of it, takes His stand on the earth, and that's what Enoch was talking about. In that earliest of prophecies, behold, the Lord came with many thousands of His holy ones. The glorious appearing of Jesus Christ. Comes with all His holy ones, His saints, those who are already with Him, and it's you. Whether you die in Christ or you've been raptured, called up, it's you. If you go in faith in Jesus, you return with Him. By the way, did you know the word is out? The world knows about the rapture. Kind of bums me out a little bit. (laughs) When I first saw with my own eyes just the biblical literalness of the rapture of the church, I was thrilled. And honestly, I don't know if you had this experience. I was I was like, oh, this is really cool. It was like a secret. You know, sharing it with that first Bible study and teaching it, talking about it, I was like, we know something's coming. We know there's going to be a day where we're just, whoop, we're gone. You know? We had our shepherd's retreat this last weekend. We thought it would be really fun. Uh, Jeff's brother-in-law, who owned the, the cabin, the home where we were staying in this weekend, um, he was gone. He was going to be coming back. We thought it might be fun if we laid all our clothes out like we were just sitting in a meeting. You know? He comes back. But it was this wonderful secret that Jesus would one day secret us away to be with Him. He'd sneak us all out. And I was like, this is so cool to know this. And then the Left Behind series broke and now everybody's reading about my secret. You know, Everybody knows. Word's out. And I was honestly, I was a little disappointed when I heard comedian commentator Jon Stewart make fun of the rapture on his show two, three years back. I mean, as if it was some obscure, nutty, bizarre concept, you know, that some out there cult might have come up with. I remember listening to that and going, oh, secret's out. And there are times that I have wished, just being honest with you, I wish we could have kept the secret, but my friends, listen. We talked about this Wednesday. In keeping with getting the truth out, the Lord wants people to know. You see, the Lord isn't into keeping secrets. The fact that the rapture was a mystery was simply because it just wasn't the best time for the world to understand it. They couldn't have understood it. But the Lord is not into keeping secrets. He wants people to know whether the rapture itself seems fanciful or not, whether people laugh you off or not. And we talked about it midweek. Salvation is not a game with the Lord. It's not like a chess match where He's seeing what people, how they're going to move and maybe they'll get saved and maybe they won't. No, that's Islam. That's Allah who plays that game. Yahweh does not play games with us in salvation. He wants everybody to know. He puts it out there for the world to understand. He says, look, I've come that you might have life and have it abundantly, Jesus said. I want you to be aware of these things. God wants to save this sad, sick, sorry world. He wants to save sad, sick, sorry little me. And you as well. And so the rapture and the return, what Paul calls the blessed hope and the glorious appearing, these are not secrets to be kept. This is something to be told. In fact, Jesus said, don't fear them. There's nothing concealed that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Matthew 10, 27. What I tell you in the darkness, speak in the light. What you hear whispered in your ear, man, proclaim it upon the housetops. These are not our little secrets. This Word of God that we have, that we share this morning, is not for us to gather and and enjoy quietly, sneakily, every Sunday morning. No, this is to get the Word out that the world may know. Redemption, return. And number three, the mist dissipates and Job sees a third summit on this prophetic peak, resurrection. 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 Oh, not Jesus' resurrection. His resurrection. Job's. Yours. Mine. Verse 26. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God. What a contradiction. (laughs) After my skin is destroyed, literally stripped off is what he's saying here. Literally flayed after that. In my flesh I will see the Lord. I would read that and then, well, Job, if it's after your skin has been stripped off, 
if you're going to be back in your flesh, you ain't going to look very good, buddy. That kind of a gross picture there. In the King James, it says, Though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God. Now the word worms is not in the original Hebrew. But the King James translator, they insert it there because the picture Job is painting is the picture of death. When my skin is dead, when I am in the grave, when I am laid out flat, after that, in my flesh, I shall see God. Resurrection. Now, again, to you and I, I mean, how many Easter's have you heard the sermon? How many times have you studied and read about resurrection in the Bible and very much part of the Christian faith is, yeah, we have a resurrection. We know. We're going to be resurrected, right? How did Job know? He didn't have all the Scriptures. He wasn't post the resurrection of Christ where the very example was before us. How did he know? It was a prophetic insight. He had revelation from the Lord that he would. And he knew this. He just believes this. That in my flesh I shall see God. Resurrection. 1 Thessalonians 5.9 God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, that is dead or alive, we will live together with Him. Paul said, Timothy, it's a trustworthy statement. If we died with Him, we will also live with Him. If you've been buried with Christ, you will rise with Christ. And this is the great news of the resurrected Christ. What is? The resurrected you. To talk about the resurrection of Christ is to accept and recognize your resurrection as well. Because He was resurrected, so you will be. Bad news, Israel travelers. You won't be seeing the tomb of Jesus on this trip. Because you can't. We don't know where it is. Well, isn't it because we have visited the garden tomb in the past? Well, I heard about the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Isn't that where? Well, that's probably not where they laid it. Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And you can visit the garden tomb, which might possibly, maybe, be where they laid him, but we don't know for sure. We can't know for sure. Why not? Nobody. It's nobody. You can go visit the grave of Muhammad in the world if you'd like to. Go check that out. You can see the grave of Buddha. Big grave. (laughs) You can see the resting place even there in Israel of Baha'u'llah. He made a name for himself there. Baha'u'llah, the Baha'i Temple. Big beautiful gardens and flowers. and That's where he's buried. You can see those places because the bodies are there. We know those are there because their bodies are there. Hey, I've seen what's believed to be Abraham's grave and Sarah's grave in the tomb of patriarchs there in Hebron, Israel. It's called the cave of of Machpelah. But you know what's interesting about even that? Abraham believed in resurrection. Abraham did. He looked forward to a day when he would be resurrected. Genesis chapter 23 tells the story about Abraham buying that cave, which is in the news today. Benjamin Netanyahu, just this morning, it it was revealed that that he's placed the cave of Machpelah, which is a very disputed area between uh, Arabs and Jews. Hebron is a very divided, extremely dangerous town. But the cave of Machpelah is there. I went down there kind of stupidly, but I saw it. And... They're protecting it now. It's going on a list of of religious sites to be protected in Israel. I'm glad it is. Along with Rachel's tomb. But the Arabic sons of Heth, in Genesis 23, the sons of Heth, they, they met with Abraham and they knew he was looking for a place to bury Sarah. She had just died. And so they offered to give him the choicest of their tombs. Look, take this one and the land right around it. We'll just give it to you. You can bury Sarah there and later be buried there yourself. And Abraham refused to take it for free. Sons of Heth. Heth means terror, which I think is interesting. So the sons of terror offer this, this place for free to Abraham, and Abraham says, no, I will not do anything but pay top dollar for it. And so the sons of Heth, they made a, 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 an offer, and Abraham did something very non-traditional, especially in the culture of the day. He didn't haggle. He said, okay, and he paid it in full. You don't want to haggle with us? You don't want to try and mark it down? No, no. He paid full price. Why did he do that? Well, perhaps the answer is in the name Machpelah, which means double doors. 
That's the kind of tomb that I want to be buried in. Double doors. If I happen to be buried before Jesus comes, I want to be in the tomb of Machpelah, double doors that swing in and out. Okay, do you understand what I'm saying? I want to walk out. And Abraham bought this cave there in Hebron, the midst of the promised land. Why? So that when his resurrection came, he could walk right out into the land that he owned. It's the only place in Abraham's entire life that he actually paid money to own. The cave of Machpelah and the field right in front of it. And that's it. God said, I'm giving you the entire promised land. Abraham was a wealthy man. He could have started buying up plots, but he trusted God for the promise. He bought the cave. Just in case, I want to own the land right there. So when it happens, I can walk right out. Abraham believed in his own resurrection. I absolutely believe he did. But those double doors would swing outward. He would step out on the land that he owned. Hebrews 11.9 says, By faith, Abraham lived as an alien in the land of promise, and as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. He considered that God was able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. That's Hebrews 11.19. Abraham believed in resurrection. Job, probably a contemporary, by the way, of Abraham, or at least of Isaac or Jacob. That's around the time Job probably lived. He also believed in resurrection. Resurrection remains at the core of mankind's longing. Always has. Whether people accept or believe in Jesus or not, there is a a longing for something beyond this life, right? Is there not? And we've come up with all kinds of bizarre and ridiculous theories about how you'll come back. You know, I'm going to come back as a horse. Good for you. Why would you want to come back as a horse? People have all these thoughts about it. And we've looked at this verse recently. Ecclesiastes 3.11 He has made everything appropriate in its time. He has also set eternity in their hearts. And so we have in us this longing for resurrection, this desire, this want to believe that after we die, there is more. Full bodily resurrection is what Job is talking about. After my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God. It's not some esoteric thing, not some spiritual misty mountain hop. It's real, tangible, physical resurrection that Job is declaring here. And it's a truth that is proven by the empty tomb of Jesus Christ. A tomb that we can't be sure about. Because Jesus resurrected. And he said, John 14, 19, his words, listen, because I live, you will also live. Because I resurrected, you will resurrect. Redemption, return, resurrection. Number four, recognition. Verse 27. Job says, For my flesh I shall see God, whom I myself shall behold, and whom my eyes will see, and not another. I like this. He says, Whom I myself shall behold. The word myself is literally on my side. Kind of like saying, I'm standing here beside myself. You know? Whom on my side, for for my perspective, from where I stand, I will see Him, but I like the way this rings, whom I on my side shall behold Him. You see, I'm going to behold Him because He is on my side. Because He's chosen to be on my side. Because He takes His stand for me and for you. Paul says, Romans 8.33, Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies, who condemns. Christ Jesus is He who died, yes rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Christ is on your side. Job says, who I on my side shall behold. He says, and whom my eyes will see, and I like this, and not another. The word another is better translated a stranger. Whom I will see. And not a stranger. I shall see God. And I will recognize Him. He is not a stranger to me. He is not a foreigner. I will recognize Him because I know Him. The recognition of Job here is absolutely stunning. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13.12, For now we see in a mirror dimly, then face to face, 
Now I know in part, and then I will know fully, even as I also have been fully known. Can you hear this in Job's words? As his friends are spouting religious formulas and pious procedures, Job talks about a Redeemer he knows. My Redeemer. I know my Redeemer, and He's no stranger to me. When I behold Him, I will see Him, and I will see Him because I know Him. I will recognize Him when He takes His stand on the earth. My friends, the peak on which Jesus will stand, again, is the Mount of Olives. And the resurrected Job will see Him there for one reason and one reason alone. He knows His Redeemer. This is not just information. It is recognition. Christianity, if it is based on information, is a lost religion. It must be based on recognition of Jesus Christ. It must be at the heart of everything we do as followers of Jesus. It must be about knowing Him, first and foremost, above all other things. You know, we spent some time this weekend talking about elders and what does the Bible say about elders and looking into the possibility of of additional elders and, and making sure that we do it a biblical way. Hey, that's information. Good information, important information, relevant information for the church. But it's not the point. Knowing Jesus, knowing Jesus is the point. Do you know your Redeemer? 2 Timothy 1.12 I know whom I have believed, Paul said. And I'm convinced he's able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. I know him. Jesus said, I'm the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep which are not of this fold, not of the fold of Israel. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. Do you know your Redeemer? Do you recognize Him? When you see Him in that day, will you say, Jesus, it's you, I see you. Well, I've never seen Jesus before, Rick. How am I going to recognize Him? You will know Him. If you spend your life now knowing Him, getting to know Him, everything about His nature, His character, who He is, when you see Him, you'll know Him. No question. In the same way that we know each other. And you realize this, that over time, when you first meet someone, you recognize their facial features. But after a while, it's not their face you see anymore. You begin to see the heart. It's why people will walk through the door, as Laura Billows did a little while back, and she smiled at me, and I went, oh, she's got a nice smile, and, hey, you got your braces off. Yeah, two months ago. (laughs) Why didn't I see that? Because I don't look at Laura's face. at the heart. It's not about the face of Jesus, it's about the character, the nature, the heart of Jesus, and if you know His heart when you see Him, you'll know Him. You will recognize Him. John said, Jesus said in John 17.3 This is eternal life that they may know you the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Now I mentioned going to Israel a couple of times and, and I, I really don't mean to kind of rub this in anybody's face who is unable to go or can't go this time around. We will be planning other trips. Jesus already has one planned. You know, when we get to go with Him, and that'll be the greatest trip of all. But there's a reason, and I've stated this in the past, there's a reason why I keep encouraging everybody to go to Israel. That if you haven't been, you should go. And even if not on this trip, on the next one. We'll get it on the calendar as soon as we can. There's a reason you should go. With every opportunity that we have until Jesus comes. And it's that you might be tour guides on that great day. You know, so that you're the ones who as we are returning with Jesus are going, hey, hey, check it out. There's Mount of Olives. Oh, really? That's Mount? Yeah, I've been there a few times myself. You know, There's Mount Zion. I recognize that. Okay, you've seen the Cascades. Perhaps you have immediate recognition of Mount Rainier. If you saw a picture of it, you go, oh yeah, it's Mount Rainier. How much better to say, there's Mount Hermon in the north or Mount Carmel by the sea. I see Mount Megiddo, Mount Tabor, Mount Gilboa. They're surrounding the valley of Megiddo. Or there in Jerusalem, Mount Zion, Mount Scopus, the Mount of Olives. You see, whether you ever get to Israel on this side of heaven or not, it's all about recognition. And far better that you should recognize your Redeemer than anything else. That we would know Jesus today so well that we will know Him when we see Him. That we, like Job, could say, hey, even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God.
And as we know where Jesus will take His stand on that day, Jude declares this, Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of His glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, and now and forever. Amen. My friends, there is redemption. There is return, resurrection. But all of this comes down to this one issue, recognition. Recognizing Jesus. And Jesus, we want to know You. As we sang earlier, we want to hear Your voice. We want to see Your face from our flesh. We want to see You, God and Father. And we want to stand with those who also recognize and know You. Lord, we know You've told us why You tarry, why why You wait, why it hasn't happened yet. And it's because people still don't know. And Father, in this fellowship, there may yet be people who don't know. There may be people sitting here who call themselves Christian. But like Job's friends, they've been bound up in religion for years and years, thinking they know, but they don't. And none of us truly recognize what this is all about until we recognize You, Jesus. Until we know You. We want to know You. We want to know You, Lord. And I pray this this blessing. I pray, Father, draw us to the Son that we might know Him. I pray out of this knowing there will be an, an overflowing. That this, Lord, would be our evangelism. That we know You so well that people begin to get to know You just because we do. And those who don't know Jesus today would know Him tomorrow, Lord, before You come. Father, thank You for telling us ahead of time. Thank You for laying this all out clearly. Back with Job. Thank You for walking it all through the prophets up till Jesus and reminding us today that You're coming and You're coming soon here at the last. In Jesus' name, Amen.